Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Hello and welcome to the American Reformer Podcast. I'm Ben Dunson, the Editor-in-Chief of American Reformer. And with me, as usual, is Josh Abatoy, the Executive Director of American Reformer. This week, we are going to do a denominational annual meeting extravaganza, uh, really focusing on the Southern Baptist Convention, which is Josh's denominational meeting, and then the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA's annual meeting, which is called the General Assembly, and... Um, and that is my denomination. Uh, Josh, what do you what do you call your uh, meeting? It's not General Assembly. What's it called? It's a convention. Just okay. Just the annual convention. Mm-hmm. The uh, or, or they call it the, to be very precise. They call it the annual meeting of the convention. But okay, yeah. annual meeting of the convention. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, there were some fireworks this year at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. Do you want to uh, get us into that? T- tell us all about what happened and uh, even, um, you know, your your um, time there and, and some things that American Reformer published and, and was involved yeah. in. Well, you know, to do this properly, we've got to we've got to start the story about a year and a half ago. Um, so because because the big issues are all interrelated. So a year and a half ago. Conservative Southern Baptists noticed that there was an uptick in churches that uh, had an, a Southern Baptist affiliation but had women pastors on staff. In 2021, actually, uh, Saddleback uh, held an ordination service for women who were put on the pastoral staff. Um, subsequently, Rick Warren retired and was replaced by a husband-wife co-pastoring team um, at Saddleback Church. People noticed some other things as well, just other churches uh, other than Saddleback. So this was a this was a point of discussion in the lead up to the convention that met in Anaheim, California, in the summer of 2022. <clears throat> and one sort of small church pastor, uh, faithful brother, who we've talked about before, Mike Law, um, he just looked at churches in his area and he noticed that there were five churches in a five mile radius of his church that were Southern Baptists that had women pastors. I think three out of the five had senior women pastors um, who were sort of the chief chief staff, uh, pastor on staff there. And so there was a lot of agitation. Now, now just to interrupt really yeah. fast. What is now, I mean, before we get into it, is that allowable? Can you have a, a female pastor in the SBC? No. Um, so, so we have the Baptist faith and message. This is our confession of sorts. Uh, the Baptist faith and message says that um, only men as qualified by scripture can serve in the, uh, the office of pastor. And the way that word is used, um, I know pastor is not in people's New Testaments, but it's um, the drafters of the, the statement and, and uh, you know, our theologians, they, they view pastor as being a word that's interchangeable with elder or overseer, which is the, the scriptural term. Um, so, no, the, the, the statement of faith says that on its face. And then the Baptist governing documents, uh, we don't quite require strict subscription, but we require, we say that churches to be 
Southern Baptist churches must closely identify with the statement of faith in order to be in cooperation. And so, um, you know, what what that ends up getting defined as is, is, you know, I think the best, best argument, what a lot of the drafters would say is, this means you can't openly contradict uh, the statement with your practice, right? So, um, you know, there may be some theological issues where you're not perfectly educated on them, or maybe you don't carry them out fully and faithfully, but, um, you know, given that our statement of faith says what it says, to have a have a woman pastor on staff is sort of a uh, just on its face is a is a contradiction of the statement of faith in a way that historically we would have said is is out of bounds. So that's that's where it stood. Um, it's a huge point of contention at last year's convention. Saddleback had been referred to our credentials committee. This is the committee that's supposed to decide if you're eligible to be a member. The credentials committee came back and said, yeah, it's really, it's just, it's unclear. We don't have enough guidance to make a call on Saddleback. Um, and uh, so, so that happened. They said, we're going to take this issue back and study it. At the same time, Mike Law hadn't received an answer on the churches that he referred to the credentials committee, these churches around him that he had noticed were egalitarian. And so he made a motion to amend the Southern Baptist Constitution uh, to establish a bright line rule, remove all discretion, and say essentially, um, you know, you can't. It, it's almost like a you know a reiteration of the confession of faith within our constitution that basically says, if you employ a woman as a pastor on your staff, you cannot be Southern Baptist. Um, it's uh, it's blunt justice. It's it's uh, it's a bright line rule, and and the. Um, the other issue that to get on the table that was an issue in, in Anaheim, California, was um, some, I, I think, with varying intentions said, you know, Southern Baptists really need to step back and they need to holistically figure out what the subscription standard is to our confession of faith. Do we require strict subscription or do we require <laughs> something below that? Pardon me. And, and what, you know, what is that standard? And um, now, you know, the, the conservatives in the convention, that might sound great in theory. Oh, that's great. Let's let's study the issue and require strict subscription. But conservatives in the convention have said, sort of it's always been understood that what this means is you can't contradict or, you know, uh, hold to a view that's openly in conflict with the statement of faith. Um, and, you know, we know the conservatives would say we know well enough what that means and forming study committees about this is not, it's likely to just slow down action that we need to take, right? It's an excuse that the, the documents aren't ambiguous. They don't need study committees. Right. The motion made last summer was made by Adam Greenway, who subsequently um, had some, some scan, financial scandals at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he, he was kind of taken off the playing field. His motion for a study committee was uh, defeated in Anaheim, California. Um, and so now I think we've almost set the table. Mike Law made this motion to amend the Constitution a, a year ago. He spent the entire year uh, writing letters and getting pastors to sign on to his letters, garnering support for this effort uh, to establish a clear rule. He collected a lot of evidence of egalitarian churches in the convention and um, making the arguments publicly. American Reformer read an article by Megan Basham uh, that, that covered some of this, as well as um, 
some aspects of Saddleback's uh, theological drift. Um, the other thing that happened in the middle of the year is uh, the credentials committee, despite the fact that they said they didn't have enough guidance, all of a sudden they decided to kick Saddleback out in the middle of the year, uh, hmm. which was unlooked for and uh, a surprise to many people, given what they had said uh, the year prior. Um, and then, you know, and then there was a debate. The debate really moved to this is not a representative issue in the SBC. Uh, it's not a major issue. Mike's law amendment, uh, his, his proposed change uh, confuses issues. It's, it's uh, mean. It's overly broad. You know, it's going to require churches that have, uh, you know, women serving as like children's ministry directors to get kicked out. And um, into that debate, we American Reformer ran another article that was really timely on uh, quantitative analysis of how many churches in the convention have women pastors. And the article that we ran by Kevin McClure, he's a PhD student at uh, Southern Seminary, but he concluded that there were likely um, over 1,800 women pastors at 1,200 churches in the convention. Um, This was significantly higher than a lot of people were saying, but notably it actually matched Rick Warren, who's been advocating openly for egalitarianism. He said, he said there were 1900 churches in the convention with women pastors and he's well-resourced. I'm actually inclined to believe his number. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he had a research team that helped him come up with that number. And he might've been a little bit less conservative in his methodology, a little bit more inclusive um, when he, when he arrived at his number. But in any event, um, it seems to have been fairly established that you know we're talking about some somewhere between twelve hundred and nineteen hundred churches in the convention that are functionally egalitarian, and this is there's forty seven thousand churches total, so this is you know somewhere between two and a half and four and a half percent of the convention. Mm. Not a, uh, um, a a small percentage, but a beachhead. I mean, that's not an insignificant number. Right, and if it if it really is a matter of faithfulness to scripture and faithfulness to to your authoritative standards, then even a small number is still you know still a problem. Yes, and and now now moderates moderates in the convention did not want to pass laws amendment, um, and the argument they used primarily was you know one this isn't a significant issue, but then two. They said, well, we disfellowship Saddlebacks, so our process is working. We don't need to fix it. And when this mm-hmm. research came out, this really kind of blew up both of those arguments. Um, and the, the main proponent of this was uh, J.D. Greer, former uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I think he, he said in an article somewhere, this is an insignificant issue, and anyone who says otherwise is ignorant or being intentionally uh, divisive. Uh, mm. And... Uh, you know, he he argued that that the the number was tiny and dwindling every year, uh, but but in fact, it looks like the it's number's been growing. You'd think that his response might just be, uh, well, I guess he did say that that it's a small number. It's a, it's interesting when people start to say, "Oh, you're being divisive about this," rather than let's deal with the facts and and come to a, a conclusion. It's oh no you're not being very nice in how you, how you uh, talk about this. Uh, that, that seems to be a red flag in my mind a lot of times. Yeah. It, I mean, he, he, he said in his article, it, I think this was a red flag. He said 
the thing that really worries me in this entire debate is what kind of signal are we sending to women who want to be involved in ministry? That's, that's the thing that really worried yeah. me. And it's like, I mean, we're, these are faithful brothers and sisters who are having a public debate about, you know, how we should enforce what we understand the Bible to mean. And like for, for the, for these concerns about how is the world going to interpret this or how are more liberal churches going to interpret it for the, for those concerns to outweigh, um, I think primarily are we being faithful to scripture is, uh, it's kind of it's it's kind of a shocking admission in some ways, uh, even though it wasn't intended yeah. as an admission. But, um, but yeah. So, so the the you know oddly enough, I, th- I think in retrospect, I, c- I can say what happened was the the decision. The credentials committee is controlled by moderates in the convention. A lot of these people were appointed by J.D. Greer, and it's perceived to be very aligned with J.D. Greer's vision for the convention, and. I, I don't think I'm being too conspiratorial to say their move to disfellowship Saddleback was partly a move to take the wind out of the sails of Mike Law's effort, right? You deal with the absolute worst offender that everybody's heard about, and then you hope otherwise the issue sort of goes away. And, um, but, but what was demonstrated through Kevin McClure's article and, and elsewhere was that um, Saddleback is just the tiniest tip of the iceberg. And, and really, you know, we need to give the credentials committee very clear guidance because otherwise um, we're going to have this ongoing uh, alleged ambiguity about whether they have the authorization to deal with the egalitarian churches. And so, um, yeah, things really broke late. The, the article that Kevin wrote uh, for us broke on Saturday evening before the convention that started on Tuesday. And it got a lot of traffic over the weekend. Um, And then really crucially, on the eve of the convention, Monday night, the convention starts Tuesday morning, Nine Marks had a panel about about, um, biblical gender roles in the the pastorship. And and, um, Jonathan Lehman cited the American Reformer article and research. Um, Kevin McClure, the author of the article, was in the audience and was given – was sort of surprised and was called on and given five, seven minutes to, to talk to it. Hmm. Mike Law was on the panel on the stage to talk about his amendment. So right there on the eve of the convention, Nine Marks has been totally not, not involved with this issue up until this point. But right on the eve of the convention, they, they have this panel in front of about 1,500 people uh, basically supporting Mike Law's amendment. And they're – they're kind of uh, nine marks guys. They're kind of swing voters. I mean, they they don't like to get involved in conventional politics, uh, convention politics, and things like that. But they do, um, you know, they do a lot of work on biblical ecclesiology, and that's sort of their calling card. And and I would say their their crew is very theologically driven. And so I, I think it was very, I do think it was very uh, significant that they that they decided to to cast in behind Mike's effort. Uh, right before the convention. And so we get to the day of the convention. Mm-hmm. What are the issues in front of us? We've got, we've got two egalitarian churches that were disfellowshipped and they have a right to appeal. They chose to appeal. So they, they make their appeals. Um, and uh, Al Mohler rebuts both of them uh, speaking on behalf of the convention. He rebuts their appeals. And then we vote on whether to uphold their disfellowshipping. And those votes were resounding overwhelmingly 
in favor of disfellowshipping of 90% to 10% um, for both hmm. of those churches, Rick Warren's church and then the church Fern Creek in Louisville, which is pastored by a woman pastor. And she was actually there at the convention and, you know, spoke, spoke uh, in her defense. Um, interestingly, she told the room, I'm more conservative than most of you. And then about 10 minutes after she said that picture started floating around of her wearing a rainbow uh, robe in celebration <laughs> of pride month. Um, so, you know, conserving it, uh, the sexual revolution, perhaps. Yes. Yes. So those were, those were great votes. And then, um, you know, we had a presidential vote in there. Uh, Mike Stone, a really faithful conservative pastor from Georgia was, was running. Um, he would have been the, you know, the, the choice for, for the really, you know, more strident conservatives in the convention. Great man. Um, you know, w- would love to have seen him one, but he, he was running against an incumbent and the tradition is usually that incumbents get two terms uh, as president. Okay. And so he, he had a lot to, that, that was a, that was a barrier to overcome. And Bart Barber, our existing president, um, you know, he hasn't had any major scandals. Um, and he's also, he's also, he just did a better job sort of um, running the convention than a lot of the prior guys have. He, he, he tried to be pretty fair in the way that he ran the convention. Um, he's a Robert's Rules guy. He cares about process. And I wouldn't say he was perfect, but he he made a better attempt than recent presidents have to run a fair convention. Um, and so he – and the room liked him. I mean, that, just fundamentally, they liked him. So Mike, Mike did not um, get close to unseating Barber. Um, but uh, – but then we came to the big debate on Mike Law's amendment. He needed two th- the the executive committee brought his amendment out for the convention to vote on. Uh, we needed two thirds of the room to support it. I was not sanguine about his chances leading up to the convention, but when I saw the way things were breaking, I started to get a bit more confident that he could he might be able to win. But it's two thirds. When we held the vote on his amendment, he ended up getting between seventy five and eighty percent of the room to support it. Wow. So that was that was huge. But now now here's the final point that I'll say about the, the convention. Um, I told you last year, Adam Greenway made a motion about how we need to study what it means to closely I- identify. And he was subsequently uh, disgraced and is not really involved in Baptist public life anymore. But a group of former presidents of the SBC uh, all got together and they made a motion together. Uh, This is James Merritt, J.D. Greer, Fred Luter, a handful of others. And they made a similar motion to form a task force to study and clarify what it means to closely identify. Conservatives attempted to oppose that motion, but it passed. Um, And and it was another one of the occasions where there was a microphone malfunction. So there was not there was not proper debate on it. It just it passed very quickly um, before the issue could be aired to the floor. So now there's I got to stop you there. Yeah. How how do you how does that happen? Um, uh, like, shouldn't they um, pause until they get the microphones working? So there's 12 microphones on the floor uh, at this convention. When there was a malfunction, uh, they had backup microphones, so you just go down to two microphones. Um, they did okay. they did not pause. Yes, in general, I think they absolutely should pause, especially when you're talking about forming a task force to study our subscription standard. I mean, this is a fundamental, you know, it's a very fundamental existential debate uh, to have. And and so, 
Yeah, it passed. Wow. It passed quickly. Um, conservatives were trying to stop it, trying to speak against it, but really there was there was totally inadequate debate. It was pushed towards the. It was the very last item in a business session, um, and a lot of really minor stuff consumed the time. And then we got to this like very fundamental, important issue. Uh, the microphone stopped working when we got to this specific issue. Uh, everybody was jammed out of two microphones. And time expired. People were trying to be recognized to call for more time. They were not recognized. Very weird. Um, well, so, oh yeah. man, this is this is driving my Presbyterian uh, self insane because you, you you can't not recognize someone in in Presbyterianism. Like you can't ignore them. Like that just is not even allowable. So that, that's kind of staggering to me. Yeah, it's bad. I mean, it's, it's uh, and there's not really any recourse, you know, the, the decisions of the chair are final. And I mean, unless you want to sue the convention or something, um, you know, there's not really a way to litigate it. So, or appeal. Um, so yeah, the, the convention um, in kind of a very rushed deliberation approved the formation of this task force. And keep in mind, you know, they had all these, you know, they had all these former presidents of the convention sort of, you know, standing together when they made the motion. This is perceived as J.D. Greer's project. Um, he's really behind it. And, you know, people who follow this closely are very concerned about this task force and they don't like, they don't like the fact that it was formed. They don't like who was supporting it. But for the average person in the room, they see all these former presidents and they think, oh, you know, they, they've, they have the best at, you know, they have our best at heart and they're going to, you know, they just want to come back with some clarifications to this really confusing issue. And, you know, but, but conservatives, I think justifiably fear that this task force is going to go uh, study what it means to closely identify with the statement of faith. And they'll come back with some standard that's significantly below subscription, right. And basically come mm-hmm. back with a standard that would allow degrees of um, disagreement or non-compliance with our statement of faith from the member churches. So, you know, passed quickly. And the the concern is, you know, that this is um, if the platform, when people on the platform really want to get stuff passed quickly, um, they, they have means of doing it. You know, they can schedule things right at the end of business sessions where there has to be a rushed vote or, you know, um, I mean, sometimes there's microphone issues. There's various levers that they can pull. And the, the concern is just, you know, this task force could come back with recommendations that we learn about the night before the convention. People don't have time to study them or publicly debate them. And the convention rushes into adopting a standard that could end up totally blowing up, you know, blowing open the convention, having any doctrinal guardrails. Um, mm-hmm. So... This is going to be a big issue. And the other, you know, there's, there's so many little nuances we could get into, but the, um, if this committee does their work a certain way, they could come back and say this supersedes the changes that Mike Law made to the Constitution. And that crucially, Mike Law's amendment, it needs to be voted by a two-thirds margin in two consecutive meetings of the convention. So he has to go back to our next year's convention to get his amendment finally ratified. But if this task force come back with certain recommendations, they may say at the next meeting, our recommendations supersede and, you know, um, they solve much more issues than just Mike's little amendment and adopt ours instead. 
Um, and uh, there, there's, I think, justifiable concern that they're actually, you know, they're, they're going to be attempting to move the needle away from the from the objective that Mike Law has been pushing for. So, I mean, we got great great results in New Orleans, but you know, nothing is nothing is set in stone, and um, you know, this this task force is going to be one to watch very very closely. And you know, these things often have a habit of delaying their recommendations until the eve of the convention. So there can be minimal sort of public debate about it. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that's how this one plays as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's one of those, those things where people, I think in the church, they, they tend to, to think that, you know, you have these victories and then it's settled, but there's no, there's no permanent victories in the church in, in, in this fallen world. Uh, that's something that I think is really important for, for people who are trying to fight for this stuff to remember is that you're, you're, you're never going to get past the need to, to stand firm and to fight for the truth. Um, a lot of times, some of the worst things that happen are when there's a victory for the, the cause of truth, and then people start to take it easy, and they think, we've settled this, mm-hmm. and then they don't pay attention and and then everything is undone within a couple of years. I mean, that seems to be just a a, 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 re- a recurring thing throughout church history. Yep. Yep. So, so that's that's uh, that's the basic readout, Ben. I mean, the, you know, I know this is probably all extremely offensive and chaotic to your Presbyterian sensibility. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, we're gonna have to come back and uh, uh, talk about that in in a, in a moment. Just talk about the uh, the differences because I find that that fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so why don't you why don't you run so. us through the highlights of the general assembly? All right. Yeah, so the the Presbyterian Church in America had its fiftieth general assembly this year. So it was kind of a, a big deal in the sense of celebrating fifty years of the PCA, um, that, that kind of defined, um, the, the, a lot of the stuff that we did. Um, I mean, there, there's, um, there's a lot that you could go into, but I'll, I'll touch on some of the highlights. Um, one is electing a moderator in, in the PCA. Um, it, I mean, it sounds like it's somewhat similar, although the PCA follows Robert's rules very strictly. And, um, and and that's that's what some of the things I'm noticing the most, uh, sort of the difference. It doesn't sound like that's the case um, in the SBC because you you could never have an instance where someone's mic stopped working and they just aren't allowed to speak, or um, or the uh, the chair um, is just not challengeable. You can always challenge the chair from the floor if you're a commissioner. Um, now you might not be successful. Um, but uh, they, they do follow Robert's rules pretty, pretty strictly. And this year, in, in particular, they did because the, the moderator was Fred Greco. Um, and, and Greco, is, he's, he's, he's like this New Yorker. He's a lawyer, a former lawyer. Um, I think he's, uh, he's Italian. Uh, he's got that, that big personality. And he's probably, if not the most knowledgeable uh, pastor in the PCA about Robert's rules of order. He is right up at the very top two or three. And, uh, and he's often very helpful at general assembly, uh, in helping people remember how to follow Robert's rules, even when he's not been moderated, but he was up against, uh, Randy Pope. 
Randy Pope is the the pastor of Perimeter Church in the Atlanta area. So this is kind of like for PCA, this is mega church in, uh, in Atlanta. And they've planted a lot of, I think, probably other mega churches. I think a lot of people were somewhat surprised that Greco won, um, not not because he's not qualified, but um, Randy Pope would be very popular among just kind of the, the, the general middle of the PCA, I think. Um, he's certainly not going to be um, perceived as being, you know, on the left um, or really on the right. Um, Greco would, has more of a reputation of being uh, more conservative, uh, but Greco won, uh, I think, by a decent margin. And and it was amazing. Uh, he is he is an amazing moderator. I, I think it's probably safe to say that he's been the, the best moderator we've ever had. And and interestingly, I think almost everyone felt this way on all spectrum, you know, across the spectrum of the PCA. Everyone saw him as being fair, um, efficient. We, we finished early, which is almost unheard of. Um, I ended up having to stay um, a, a lot longer than uh, I needed to because um, I had no idea we were going to finish so early. And um, and so he did a really good job in in moderating um, we, there's a lot that goes on at the general assembly. Um, there's, there's sermons that are preached, there's worship services, there's, um, all sorts of committee reports from all across the denomination, but that's not really what gets the most attention. Um, what, what people focus on as far as getting the attention is the overtures, um, that come before the general assembly. Mm-hmm. Most of these overtures are to amend our book of church order. Um, which is which is pretty thick itself. Um, in in good Presbyterian fashion, we have a we have a thick book of church order. We have um, a decently thick rules of assembly operations. So sometimes there will be um, things to amend that as well. Um, this year, someone proposed to to cut debate from one hour on certain um, things to thirty minutes, unless people request otherwise. Um, and then there's various other things like adding new presbyteries and things, but most of them are to amend the book of church order. And that's where the more controversial amendments come in. Um, I, I think for, for someone who is, is a conservative in the PCA, and, and this is the general sense I got from most that they were, they were very surprised by how, conservative the votes were this year on almost everything. And I know conservative is, is really not the, the best word, really. Um, a better word would probably be confessional. Um, people who are more strict in adherence to to the confession, the, the Westminster Confession, or just tend to be more strict in adherence to, um, to various, uh, well, like the Book of Church Order and things. Um, I think every single vote I took went the way I voted, except for one nomination. Um, and uh, so that at least tells you where it is from my perspective. Uh, and, and the margins were really large on, on almost all of these votes, with one exception. So to give you a, kind of a sense of some of the more controversial ones, although this was just a less contentious General Assembly, it seemed like people all across the spectrum thought it was very collegial this year, very efficient, um, very fair. But there there were um, amendments that were put forward to our Book of Church Order on um, – this has happened three years in a row. This is the third year we've tried this. 
where we changed the Book of Church Order to make it explicit that a man could not um, identify as as gay mm-hmm. and be a pastor or, or an elder, um, he, and that that um, that would pass at the General Assembly the last two years, mm-hmm. some form of those amendments, and then it goes to all of the presbyteries throughout the year, and they have to vote on it and. Uh, and two thirds of the presbyteries have to pass, and then it goes back to the general assembly next year. Well, it hasn't passed in the presbyteries for two years, mm-hmm. and and the main argument has been for people who don't like it is that it wasn't clear enough mm-hmm. in, in its wording, and it would exclude people who were faithful, um, and and so on. This year, I think that argument finally kind of uh, had had its day because there were three years in which people could clarify this language. And it came back, and I think most people just felt this year it was very clear. Like, there, you can't continue to say that forever. If you, if you keep saying it's not clear, it's not clear, it's not clear, eventually I think people are going to just assume you're not really arguing in good faith anymore yeah. um, after three years. Um, and so... so um, you know, a form of this overture passed this year by a very overwhelming margin. It has to go back to the presbyteries again. I don't know what will happen, but I I feel more optimistic this year than I have in previous years that it will pass mm-hmm. in the presbyteries. It it really only would have taken a couple of presbyteries to go a different way last year. Um, and I just, I, I have the sense that people finally, you know, they want to move on. They, they see, okay, we, we finally clarified this. It's good. Let's just, let's accept it and let's move on. Um, of course, time will tell, um, over, over this year. Hey, can we talk on this for a that's second? actually the case. So, so we yeah. And I, I follow this from a distance, but I mean, these are, these are basically amending the, the book of church order. So that somebody who's like a, you know, kind of a whole hog member of revoice, right. And identifies as a gay mm-hmm. Christian or something like that would not be able to, uh, in that state, be able to, uh, become a, a teaching elder in the, in the PCA. Is that, is that a fair summary? That's right. Yeah. Or a ruling elder. So okay. we distinguish between uh, teaching and ruling elders. So in, any elder, um, could not say I'm a gay Christian. Um, if these pass the presbyteries, and then if they pass general assembly next year, yeah, and that that's kind of been. Um, I mean, it would also it would include anything. I mean, it would include any sort of um, deviation from biblical sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, so transgenderism, I think, you know, would would fall under that. I mean, but so would so would other sexual sins. Although I, I'm not aware of anyone that's arguing that you can be an adulterous Christian or um, mm-hmm. a, a porn addicted Christian or something like that, uh, and, and just say, okay, that's okay. So, yeah, so that, that passed, um, and, and it'll go to the presbyteries, uh, for people who, who don't understand how Presbyterianism works. I mean, if you, if you watch the general assembly, I think m- most people will probably like about 30 seconds in be utterly overwhelmed, um, by the way things uh, operate. Cause we have this thousand page, um, manual for mm-hmm. every year that has all the information in it. And so what you're hearing from the floor is, is something like uh, along these lines, we're going to take over to one, three, five, seven, nine, eleven in omnibus 
uh, does anyone want to pull any amendments out of this? And then someone will say, I, I motion to take Overture 6 out and, and vote separately. And it, all of this, this stuff that if you don't have this paper in front of you and you're, you're like reading it very carefully and you don't zone out and multitask, even as a commissioner, you basically get lost in about five seconds. Um, so so it, it can be very uh, complicated and overwhelming from the outside. I love it. Um, a lot of people tend to, to think, you know, this is uh, quenching the Holy Spirit or something. But I, uh, mm-hmm. but the Apostle Paul um, said that uh, God is a God of order and um, everything should be done decently and in order. And <laughs> we really did this year uh, do that. And I think that's um, it's 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 remarkable because when you do things decently and in order, it's not just nice, but it it prevents shenanigans. It, it yeah. prevents underhanded stuff. Um, you just can't, you can't get away with underhanded moves at the Presbyterian General Assembly. I, I don't see how it would be possible because the moderator can be challenged. You know, the, the chairman can be challenged at any point, And then it goes to a vote for the whole, gen- all the commissioners at the General Assembly, and they can vote whether to sustain the, the, the moderator or not. So, you know, he can't, he can't um, just do what he wants. Um, th- there's, there's no way to cut someone's microphone off. There's a specific amount of time that's allotted for, for each person to speak. If their microphone went out, the moderator would, would say, would you please go to another microphone or something like that? But, you know, in my three years at General Assembly, I've never seen a microphone go out, which is, which is amazing. I think that the SBC needs to work on its technology. Um, Microphones because- went out twice, um, both of them during contentious uh, debates. And once... <laughs> That's just amazing. Well, once the um, once they found that the main cord running to all of the microphones on the floor had been severed. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it is enough to make you suspicious, isn't it? <laughs> Try not to be. It but, is. It is. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird. Um, but I mean, yeah. because of the fact that I've never heard of that happening at the PCA, you know, we've, we've got, I don't know how many microphones we have, eight or 10 or, or something. Um, and that just doesn't happen. And if it did, they would, they would pause the person's time and they would allow them to go to another microphone. And if you didn't do that, you know, if you, if you, if they, if their microphone got cut off and the, and the moderators are like, okay, well, we're moving on, there would be a, a I mean, you would have people shout. I mean, the, the whole floor would rise up and, and, and challenge him. And it's like, you can't do that. Uh, there's, there's no way you could get away with that. So I, I, I really think like doing things decently and in order um, in that way is, is so important to, to maintain justice and fairness mm-hmm. um, in, in these procedures, because you just, I just can't see how you could get away with it. How many people um, are at the general assembly? Voted. How many voters? So we had, I think we had about 2,200 commissioners. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be ruling elders and teaching elders. Um, each church is allowed a certain number of ruling elders based on the size of the church. And then all teaching elders in the PCA are allowed to come and vote. Um, and so I think we had about 2,200, if, if I remember correctly. And so they're, they're all voting, uh, assuming they're in the room, um, with their electronic clicker, um, electronic voting machine that they have in their hand. Um, we're all voting um, for these. Yes. Yeah, so so. The, the SBC is a lot bigger, and maybe that's part of the unwieldiness. But 
Right. It's uh, so. How many people would you have it have um, voting on these things? We had twelve thousand in New Orleans, and we've had up to fifty thousand. Uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, I could see. I could see how that could that could make things a little bit more different. But but as far as the microphones, it sounds like we have about the same number of microphones, and um, you really gotta um, you really gotta work on that. Um, but I but it, just like a simple um, a simple change in procedure to where. You're not allowed to just move on if a microphone fails. Um, it sounds to me like the the chairman is not required to adhere strictly to Robert's rules. Would that be true? Or, well, or is no, that no, not the case? He is, but um, but there's I mean there's discretion for the chairman under Robert's rules. So the the um, for instance, if if you have twelve thousand people in the room and you know all of a sudden you know, uh, most of your microphones fail. It's very hard. You might very well have somebody in the back or in a corner, you know, uh, trying to make a point of order who mm-hmm. just isn't physically heard or seen by the chair. And, right. you, you know, the chair calls the vote you know, or here's a call for the vote. Um, the vote's held. And then, then it's fait accompli. Um, so right. it, there's, there's – um, and th- that situation I described doesn't violate Robert's rules, but it uh, – you know, at least at this convention, there were a couple of occasions where people – they just didn't – they felt that there was no opportunity to make a point of order or object that, 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 that the uh-huh. – um, you know, that the proceedings uh, went on inappropriately quickly, especially following the microphone outage. Um so, you know, the, um, yeah, I would say that overall, I mean, I, I'm not sure I could point out exactly what the failure to adhere to Robert's rules was because you can't, you know, you can't get subjectively into the chair's head and like, oh, was the chair aware of, you know, th- these people trying to make a point of order before he, you know, before he called for the vote. But, um, you know, it's, it's, the pr- much more care is needed for the, for the process. And, you know, the other thing I'd say is like the, the, the SBC agenda is larded up with uh, uh, extraneous sermons and, uh, you know, kind of a concert. I, I hesitate to say worship music, but performances by musicians and extremely long and uh, vague updates from the various ministries that, you know, there's actually, the thing goes on for two days and there's only about, you know, uh, four or five hours dedicated to good, hard business. So, Mm. um, Mm. I think that that needs to be to reform the process. You you just need more time for business. And, you know, this isn't a meeting of the local church. You can cut out a lot of the, you know, we don't, you know, we don't need worship music. I mean, this is not, you know, we're not trying to hit all the elements of, of uh, you know, the means of grace like you would, you know, in a Sunday morning church service or something. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, so, um, yeah, I mean, that, at our General Assembly this year, there were there were some more um, interesting um, amendments that were put forward. Um, there, there was a proposal to require criminal background checks for all candidates for ministry, um, which, uh, which didn't succeed. 
um, I think the general sense, the general feeling was that is uh, we haven't thought through the implications of that, um, the possible ramifications of that. Um, that that one was done primarily with with the a view towards um, preventing sexual abuse. Um, there was um, there's an interesting one. I mean, you'll find this maybe interesting as a lawyer is that there was an attempt to make it such that no professional lawyer can serve as um, a prosecutor in a church trial. So we, we have church trials where we have prosecutor and we have defend, def, a defense attorney kind of situation and, um, and, um, and, and a judge and, and things like that. But it's just um, in cases of church discipline. And, and, and you try it in that way. And, and people thought it was unfair for one side to have maybe like a professional law firm mm -hmm. um, representing them because maybe it was an elder in the, in the PCA and he happens to be a lawyer. And uh, there was actually a case of this where there was, uh, you know, he was able to use his paralegals and, and various things. And, and, uh, and that failed as well. Um, so we didn't change that. You're still allowed, if you're a lawyer, vocationally to, to represent candidates uh, or, or people in, in church cases. Um, the, the what was the rationale was on that? that? What what would be the problem? I mean, it. it uh... I mean, the the problem was just that they thought it would be unfair. You know, if one side had a, let's say, you had a high powered lawyer who's a ruling elder, and the other side, um, it's, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I don't know, anything, a elementary school teacher who who happens to be the the other the defense counsel in the church trial that it just wouldn't be fair. But I think most people felt that. The, the alternative would actually be the real problem is um, you, you would be saying that there is one class of elder in the in the PCA that can't um, serve as a prosecutor or a defense attorney in a church trial. Mm -hmm. And and that's what prevailed. I think that was that was the right decision. Um, ultimately, as a lawyer, I would have to think like, you know, the, the skills that we get aren't extraneous or silly like they are. They're very helpful for getting to the bottom of a matter, and uh, and really the ideal would be if if you could have a lawyer on each side of every case, you know. Well, that's that was the argument made on one side. You know, the, the, I read an article where a lawyer was making this exact argument. Is that he said what we need is to try to get as many people that kind of help as we can, rather than just saying no one can can use that. Yeah. Um, so so that that seemed to prevail. Um, you know, th there are some overtures. So we ha we have a, an overtures committee, which meets in the first two days of General Assembly, and they hash things out first. Um, and they sometimes will vote to change the wording of some of the overtures, and they will make recommendations on overtures, whether we should pass them or not. It's not binding. We vote as, a, as an assembly whether or not we're going to follow those. Um um, but some overtures don't even make it um, to the floor. And some overtures, like some people might follow the PCA and they might think, oh, man, they, they kind of went in a liberal direction on this one. But what actually happened is our General Assembly almost never um, votes on overtures that come from individual churches. You can send it. But if your presbytery has rejected it, we almost never vote on it. We send it back and say you need to get the presbytery behind it. Mm -hmm. That happened a few times. Uh, the most controversial um, of our overtures this year was uh, one that took a, an hour of debate 
um, the full the full normal time of debate, and uh, and this one was um, was voting on um, on who can be a witness in a church trial. And traditionally, Presbyterians have said that atheists are not allowed to testify as witnesses in church cases, church mm-hmm. trials, um, because they they basically they I mean they use the same they have no fear of God mm-hmm. and they don't they don't um, they don't have any reason in principle to tell the truth. And uh, and so that was actually the most controversial thing we debated at the whole assembly was um, there were there were some who were arguing that we need to change that and allow atheists to testify in in church cases. Um, we didn't we we voted not to to change that, which I think was right, uh, and still to require um, that that you can't testify if you're an atheist. Uh, this one was interesting because it was it was very much about abuse um that that was really what was was driving this was that victims of abuse won't be able to get justice if for instance you don't allow a let's say an atheist who happens to be a medical doctor to testify in the case you know because they they have the evidence of of uh, rape or something like that um now this one was interesting because the the, the main um, individual who was arguing that we have to change this to where atheists can testify probably guaranteed that what he wanted failed because of the way he argued for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was just almost um, completely emotionally driven, and um, I mean it was fairly emotionally manipulative, and he didn't really make any arguments. Uh, he just he, he and this takes me back to something you said about about the women's issue um, in the SBC. His, his his one of his main arguments was the world is watching, and uh, and he said Christianity Today recently wrote a negative article about the PCA because of its how it's dealing with abuse, and the world is watching, and we have to do the right thing so mm-hmm. that the world will see it, mm-hmm. and um, and and. Several men stood up to respond, and they said, "What matters is that God is watching, um, not that the world is watching." You know, if we go by that reasoning, we're going to be changing our view of sexuality, of homosexuality, of transgenderism, very, very rapidly. Yeah. Um, what matters is doing what is right before the Lord, and thankfully that that prevailed. Although that was the closest vote in in the whole assembly. Uh, one of the one of the problems with this is is this claim that victims of abuse can't get justice, and people brought this out, is that they they were treating church trials as if they're civil trials mm-hmm. or, or criminal trials, um, because what you're doing in a church trial is you're you're dealing with church discipline. You're you're establishing um, whether someone is unrepentant in their sin. You're not trying to establish whether a crime was committed. And so this argument that, that, that people can't get justice mm-hmm. um, really just doesn't make any sense because they they will be taking these things to the criminal courts. Yeah. And that's where they're going to seek um, justice in that sense, you know, um, earthly justice um, and so on. There's a, there's an analog here to the SBC. Um, you know, abuse has been uh, a big point of discussion in the SBC as well. Probably very, probably very similar arguments. Um but um, 
I think one of the ironies is, yes, we've we've heard this argument as well. You know, where are the victims going to get justice? Well, I mean, obviously, the first place you look to for justice is the justice system, like the civil magistrate, the person who's been commissioned by God to punish evildoers. And, you know, even in the in the PCA, certainly the SBC, all of these proceedings that happen outside of a court, like they don't have witnesses aren't um, making you know, testimony under oath with threat of perjury, right? And they're not... Um, right. Sometimes you don't get the ability to do a cross-examination. Um, you don't get all of the procedural safeguards that happen in a courtroom that help you get to a better fact result. And the the thing, I mean, in the SBC, perhaps it's similar in, in the PCA, but the, the move has been... Um, you know, abuse activists have wanted to lower criminal defense uh, procedures to make it easier to get convictions of alleged abusers in the in the criminal courts, and that that's, that project has generally failed just because America has pretty good case law on criminal uh, kind of criminal rights uh, or alleged criminal rights, and so you know they they. Um, the, the project is stalled out in the courts, and so often there's these cases that you can't, you know, the, the government doesn't want to prosecute because there's not enough evidence um, to get a conviction. And then it, it's it, oftentimes it's too close even to take it to a civil trial. But then the abuse activists would turn and say, well, we want to go to the church, and we want the church to have an adjudication about this, even though it hasn't been litigated in any formal court and we want the church to make a determination. Um, and I, I think oftentimes that's driven, it's driven to make the church another institution um, that can punish alleged abusers, but do so with a much lower standard of evidence and with, with fewer procedural guardrails in place. And so you see this yeah. with, in the SBC, the big debate right now is we were, you know, we're going to set up a database of abusers, right, to warn other churches. So when you when you go to hire a pastor, you can run them through the database to make sure they're not an abuser. And, okay, that list will be populated with criminal records, fair enough, um, you know, conf- people who've confessed, you know, fair enough. But then they want to include credibly accused on that list incredibly accused yeah. and include people who, um, you know, the, the matter was never tried in a civil court, but um, some third party fact finder determined that the accusation was credible. Um, and that's just, that's extremely fraught because you're, you're putting the church into a situation where it's trying to make a fact determination and it's risky too. I wrote about this last year, but if you wrongly include somebody, um, they they can turn around and sue you for, you know, I mean, mm. if, if like if you or I, you know, had an accusation made against us, that can ruin our livelihoods, right? I mean, it ruins your reputation. Yeah. It's a terrible thing. Um, and there's a reason why there's a high threshold for this stuff in criminal criminal courts. Um, but so so you know, people whose lives are are wrongfully ruined by being included on this list will have grounds to sue. Um, you know, and then there's so, so. Anyways, it, it's it's uh, it's very interesting, but I'm I'm glad to hear. You know, the 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 abuse activists in the SBC have essentially gotten their way almost entirely. Um, it's been an impossible issue to uh, 
you know, I've, I've tried to, and a number of others have tried to urge reason and caution and let's slow down and deliberate about this stuff. And it's been like stepping in front of a freight train. But it sounds to me like in the PCA, uh, that abuse activist agenda has met with more resistance. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, so last General Assembly, we had a sexual abuse committee report, very large, like year-long study committee on this. And, um, and they did some things that are similar to what you're saying. They, they use some of that same concerning language. Now, for the PCA, committee reports are not binding in mm-hmm. any way. They're just simply given to the General Assembly as, um, and received with thanks. Uh, no one has to, to agree with a single word written in them. Um, but they, they used some language and it showed up actually in one overture that we, that we were, um, we were looking at this year where they used the language of believe victims. Um, and, and there's some concerning language that would, would, uh, would lead many to, to see, um, a kind of presumption of guilt rather than presumption of innocence. Um, and sort of just, you know, basically denying fundamental principles of justice. Now, the, even in this overture, they say, whereas the innocence of the accused is to be assumed. So they don't actually formally deny it, but they are allowing some of that language to come in. Now, this didn't pass at our General Assembly. And from what I'm seeing, most people are commenting that this year, anything that had to do with recommendations of that sexual abuse report from last year failed, interestingly. Um, at our general assembly, mm-hmm. um, I mean, there there was some pretty serious emotional work going on last year from the floor where they're telling us that um, you know if you don't do these sorts of things, like believe all victims and things like that, that you, you know, you're really pretty um, concerning person. Um, but that doesn't seem to me to have been successful in actual votes. You know that. that that kind of uh, language. I mean, everyone wants to help those who have really genuinely been abused. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, the people who do the abuse don't want to, but um, you know, th- there's this assumption that maybe um, people who don't like this language don't care about the abused, and that's just false. Um, but those those kind of amendments just um, they all failed this year. So yeah, it is it is interesting. It seems like a, a, a contrast between what what's going on in the SBC. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, I think we can probably wrap there unless you have any closing thoughts. Well, um, Oh man, I have a few, but we might, we've been okay. going for a while. Um, yeah. I, I, I was, oh, uh, maybe, maybe another I do week. have one I'm quick question for you, Ben. Um, yeah. what happened with the Northeastern Presbytery? Did you follow that at all? Um, you might have to give me a little bit it's more New England Presbytery um, context. Okay, I um, thought there, yeah, was there a is vote. New England. Yeah. Wasn't there a vote relating to um, an investigation into the New England Presbytery? Am I am I am I misremembering that? Um. Well, so I'm I'm just looking at our. Um, at our overtures and there were, there were two from, there were, well, there's also Southern New England, so it could be that. Um, Mm -hmm. There were two overtures from 
one or two from the southern New England Presbytery, one from the northern New England Presbytery. And what was the issue you were talking about? I thought I thought that there I thought that there had been a motion to um, to uh, investigate the New England Presbytery. I, c- I could be totally wrong. Perhaps I'm I'm confusing issues. Oh, you're thinking New York, yeah. New York, New York. Yeah, okay. yeah. I see. I okay, see. no. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually yeah. pretty big. <laughs> yeah. um, the the in the New York Presbytery there was a woman preaching and uh and it was it was particularly egregious because this was a this was an ordained episcopalian woman um mm-hmm. who who preached and um they i don't think she administered the lord's supper but they had the lord's supper administered and then after the fact they claimed that this was that she wasn't preaching, but then that means there was no sermon, which is itself problematic from our standpoint, because you can't administer the Lord's Supper without uh, the the preaching of the word. Um, but it was I mean, it was a clear egregious violation um, where a woman preached and the presbytery looked into it and did nothing. Mm-hmm. And and then this came before the General Assembly and the um, the General Assembly then um, this was at the beginning. Uh, so we have what's called a standing judicial commission. Commissions are um, are groups of of elders that uh, that actually have authority to act. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't just make um, recommendations. Um, they can always be challenged, but they they do have authority to act. And and so we, um, if I remember the details exactly, we sent this. We made sure that this is going to be sent to the um, Standing Judicial Commission. I mean, it was pretty uh, overwhelming. The assembly mm-hmm. was very concerned about this, and it was very clear that they believed that the New York Presbytery erred in in not disciplining this congregation for allowing this. Uh, mm-hmm. It was so blatant. Um, so that that struck me as a really interesting <laughs> parallel or, or, or you know issue comparing the PCA and the SBC because I had no idea that there were so many female pastors, people calling themselves pastors in the in the SBC, you know, and we had one instance where this happened, and and it was dealt with, um, and it was pretty overwhelming that that this was wrong. There's there's more ways for egalitarianism to hide in the SBC because we don't have a uniform uh, convention for uh, titles. So, you know, that's I think that's part of it. Um, you know, and, and you have a you have something like an, a formal ordination process as well, right? So, yeah, and you know, we actually passed another overture this year, which says that no one who is not an elder or deacon. Um, or uh, a minister, any sort of um, you know, any sort of official church designation can call themselves that either. So, um, wow. so no, no woman could call herself a deacon if this passes in the presbyteries. And th- this has been an issue in the PCA is is people saying that there are these unordained deacon deacons who are women mm-hmm. um, or, or something like that. So, so now you, if you are a if you're a woman, you can't say you're a deacon. If I mean, if you're a, an unordained man and you're calling yourself a youth pastor, or your church is putting that on the website, you couldn't do that either. Um, so they're they're tightening that up to where mm-hmm. only those who are ordained to office of elder or deacon can call themselves that, and that would include ministers as well. That that's fascinating. So I mean, it's it's um, the SBC got a lot of the major media attention this past week, 
I mean, it is a lot bigger, so maybe that's part of it, but, um, right. You know, it's, uh, yeah, in a lot of ways, the SB, uh, the PCA had a, um, you know, more resounding, uh, general assembly than we did in, in terms of staying faithful. It's also interesting, you know, if you look at the Pew data and, uh, and other surveys of opinions, um, you know, the PCA is on average, people in the pews are on average a little bit to the left of the SBC on a lot of social issues. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, it seems that uh, it, it seems that uh, they're very well led and, and the folks in leadership in the PCA right now are just are, are doing a really solid job. Um, so that's that's really encouraging. I mean, in some ways, I think this underscores for me, at least, how poorly the SBC is actually led right now. The people in the pews are generally pretty conservative and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but our, our leaders are, are both, you know, they don't care as much as they should about running transparent processes. And then they're also generally to the left fairly significantly of the, of the faithful in the pews. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a situation, a lot of good people in the, in the, in the Southern Baptist convention are working hard to change, but, uh, you know, the, uh, yeah, the faithful leadership of the PCA, uh, as, as exemplified this cycle, uh, is an inspiration to, uh, to friends in the SBC for sure. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very encouraging and there is some maybe more anecdotal evidence, but there actually is some official evidence because there's, there's statistics about pastors who are leaving the PCA mm-hmm. And um, and it seems like there's a, a steady trickle of PCA pastors out into more liberal denominations mm-hmm. like the Episcopalian Church, um, uh, ECO, mm-hmm. um, the ECO Confederation of, of Presbyterians or the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, EPC. Um, there, there seems to be m- much more people exiting that direction I, I can't say this is is actually the case, but my impression is a good number of people kind of see where things are headed, and they're deciding that they don't they don't belong anymore, and mm-hmm. they actually are leaving. And I think it's one one reason to encourage people to not give up is because if you continue to put pressure on your denomination to do the right thing and, and people continue to, to put forward faithful amendments for the PCA and they keep pressing to do the right thing, which is often what conservatives don't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just leave. And it's the, it's the, those more on the left who keep putting that pressure. You know, if you keep putting that pressure, eventually people get tired mm-hmm. and they leave. And I think that's possible that, that that might actually be happening to some degree in the PCA. Yeah, time will tell. Yeah, it's it's actually so. So the problem with the 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 SBC conservatives have felt embattled for about four years, and the big thing that happened this time around was they feel great, they feel emboldened, they feel like it went well, and there are some people on the leftward fringes that are leaving already, leaving the SBC loudly, and so I think I think the faithful in the SBC are really encouraged and feeling the wind at their backs right now and ready to come back again and again with more pressure. Um, So I think we're in early days there, but I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, in three or four years, we're having a similar conversation where, 
you know, some really good leaders um, passed some really clean, transformative slates of uh, agenda items that that set the SBC up well for long term yeah. faithfulness. So. Very good. All right. Well, Ben, I think we beat this up. I could talk about it all day, but, uh, you know, um, I think yeah, we've same beaten here. this up pretty sufficiently. Um, thank you so much, listeners, for uh, your attention and for your support. Um, we at American Reformer, we care deeply about these institutions. They're incredibly important um, for American Christians in, in many spheres for advancing the work of the church and then also for civic and cultural leadership. And, and it's, it's incredibly important that we maintain these institutions as, um, as functional, uh, functional units of organization, um, even while the rest of society and our mainstream institutions become incredibly corrupt. Um, there's so much that these institutions could do for good for resourcing Christians um, who are increasingly embattled. And, um, you know, we, we, we appreciate it. You can, um, you can check us out at AmericanReformer.org or at AmReformer on Twitter. If you like this show, you can get it on Apple Podcast, Podbean, Spotify. And to make one really quick little pitch, we're, we're in a fundraise week right now. We actually had a very generous supporter offer to match every donation that we get this week up to $75,000. The results of this fundraise are going to go to uh, general operations and journal op- um, operations. Um, and if we can get this done, it, w- it will significantly help us in meeting all of our operational needs uh, to the end of the year. So if you have the capability, if you like our work, please prayerfully consider supporting us. We are a nonprofit. We depend entirely upon donations um, and we want to continue doing the work that we're doing and and uh, shining a spotlight on very important debates in these institutions um, you can check us out at our, at our website to find the information on donating and, and tell your friends as well um, we uh, we only survive because we have a lot of faithful supporters like you and uh, we, we appreciate it um, with that we'll call a, a close to this pod and we'll talk to you next time Thank you. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer.